So what I just want from you right now is I want you just to walk. Like, can you just, like, explain to me here the process? <laughs> the process on a, on a very practical uh, Hey guys, Jules here. So, so start, a few months ago, I had just the immense privilege of visiting a local woman right here in Denver who has become one of the area's most talented and well-sought-after artists and teachers. And of course, there are different styles, different schools, different traditions, but more or less... They are represented more or less with the same features. Right. There are a few, a few nuances for Mary because she can her be represented. Name is Lawrence uh, Pearson, and in a so bit we we'll hear a little bit about her life, her work as an artist, etc. But so for now, I wanted to talk two. about um, a painting to represent them in a more contemporary style. There's just. They're just beautiful. When you say contemporary, you mean darker features? So what do you mean by No, that? a little bit more modern, simplified um, folding, see. you know, in the garments. Yes, I see. I mean, they can be more traditional with a few more elaborate uh, marks, and but this one is very simple. You can see an image of this icon on our website and on our Instagram, by the way. I highly recommend you do, <laughs> so you can see just how amazing it is. But I wanted Lawrence to explain something to me. You see, Lawrence is an artist with a wide array of talents. She even teaches classes at the local botanical gardens for floral and botanical painting. But I reached out to her because of her work with Byzantine iconography. Again, we'll talk about this tradition a little bit more over the next two episodes episodes, but I wanted to speak with an iconographer for two reasons. One, I wanted to speak about the time <laughs> it takes to create a painting. Many take over 70 hours to complete. And the other reason are the symbols. Every single posture, every single symbol, every single stroke in icons contains meaning and purpose. And each element is meant to draw us further into the depths of God's love and mercy. In the technique itself, you go from dark colors towards light colors, which is the opposite of traditional painting where you add the shadows at the end. You start with the light colors and you add the shadows at the, at the end. In icon painting, you start with the dark colors. You see the, the, yes. the, the faces, they're already dark. And then you bring them towards light. And it's also a very spiritual journey. You go from darkness towards light. This is the story of part one, creating with the creator. For the past two years, I have done something for my family, which I never, ever, ever <laughs> thought I would do. I make homemade grape jelly. About six years ago, when we moved into our home, my husband and I noticed an overgrown, dying grapevine growing up the side of an arbor next to our patio and along a pergola also in our backyard. After some convincing from my husband, instead of digging up the whole vine and just being done with the thing, 
<laughs> we decided to try and revive it. My husband read a few articles and watched a few videos. We pruned and we pruned and tore away old dead vines in the hopes of bringing new ones to life. And after three years in the home and many attempts at pruning, we had our first crop of grapes. And then the following year, we had so many grapes that I used half for jelly and I think half for grape juice, if I remember. <laughs> and with my newly picked grapes, and after some more research, I decided to make grape jelly. I soaked the grapes for 24 hours into an old cheesecloth and pot. I boiled the grape juice and quickly stirred in the sugar and the pectin. I completely failed at gelling the thing and had to start all over again and add even more pectin. <laughs> this happened to me twice actually. I carefully jarred the hot jelly into jars, boiled them until the jars were sealed, and refrigerated them until they had officially set. We had enough jelly, I think, to last us about half a year, maybe a little bit more. And so the question begs itself, why on earth did I put myself through this? <laughs> why did I go through hours of work and pruning and researching and making the jelly when I could just go to Costco and grab an enormous family-sized grape jelly for like, I don't know, $3? I think we've all probably encountered something like this in our lives. This unexplainable, maybe mystifying reality that there is something we enjoy when we create, even when that creation takes forever. Ever. <laughs> Maybe you prefer to knit or crochet a homemade blanket instead of just buying one at the store. Maybe you take the time to create delicious homemade sourdough bread. Maybe you garden, create music, or sew. The list is endless and it might seem baffling to outsiders, but we all have something, something which we prefer to create as opposed to convenience. And so the question, of course, is why? Why are we made this way? Over the next two episodes, we're setting out to get to the bottom of that question. Why are we wired to create? And what happens along the journey of creating that draws us closer to God, our good creator? We're going to tell today's story through the story of three artists, including Lawrence, who you met at the top of the episode. But first, we need to try and get at some theological justifications. And to do so, we need to look at what the church, specifically the modern church, has taught to us about creating beauty. Now, because we're limited with time, we're going to address this idea with a letter. Probably one of the most important letters written of the past 40 years, John Paul II's Letter to Artists. John Paul II really, in, in that letter, tried to, I think he was trying to create a reset for a relationship between the church and the arts. This is Elizabeth Lev, by the way, art historian in Rome, who you heard from last episode. Um, the letter, which was directed to artists, so that's, uh, that's already an innovation in and of itself. It's not from a magisterial point of view. There had been uh, councils that discussed art in general and the role of art, there was some very 
interesting treatises written by uh, by bishops or cardinals to help artists. But in this case, we have John Paul II, who really makes a point of trying to help form artists. And that's what I think is really interesting about this letter. St. John Paul II's Letter to Artists was released in 1999 and, as Elizabeth mentioned, was remarkable in the way it tried to personally connect with artists. The letter was addressed specifically to them, artists in general, and was not meant to be read as a theological treatise or magisterial declaration, but it was perfect in its intimate simplicity. In the chaos of the modern era, when modernism has swept into art, beauty was no longer tied intimately to truth and goodness. And as a result, art and architecture in the church had often become about one's personal experience rather than about worship. In his wisdom, John Paul II recognized that the way you change the culture, the way you bring people into the love of God, was through beauty. And artists had to be the champions of this, right? So I asked Elizabeth if she could offer a bit of a summary of the letter, and more importantly, the letter's significance for all of us today. first part of that letter is really a, a, a brief and yet powerful formation for artists to understand what it is that the church has been doing, allying itself, working with art and artists for all these centuries. So we get this incredible scope from when art first, Christian art, the Christians first decide to make art because it's incarnational. This is a very important part of what John Paul II would do uh, when he spoke about the Sistine Chapel. It was under his watch that the Sistine Chapel was finally cleaned and these beautiful images came to light and he, he starts preaching on the theology of the body and he gives us the Sistine Chapel is the sanctuary of the theology of the body. So he does this idea of incarnation, uh, man in God's image and likeness, and then God made man. And that visibility of, of, of God, when God comes into the world, historical existence as Jesus Christ so that we can look at him. The most beautiful thing possible and imaginable walks among men, is known by men and women, and opens up the door for us to make art. But at the end of the day, every single time a Christian is making art, it is an incarnational act. We make it because we are emulating the fact that God came into creation and became part of creation. It it, it is the true call to artists. Each time we create, we are participating in an incarnational act. Do I need to say that again to let that sink in? (laughs) Each time we create, we are participating in an incarnational act. What a gift that is for all of us. What a privilege we all have. And of course, John Paul II isn't alone in believing and teaching this, right? The church, as Elizabeth mentioned, and as explained in the letter, has a rich history of supporting the arts, commissioning art, protecting art, and teaching through art. But even in the modern era, the church continues to communicate this, to communicate the importance of beauty. Pope Francis recently said the church's mission has always been through the creativity and talent of artists. And Pope Benedict, before and throughout his pontificate, wrote extensively about the importance of beauty, including what I think is a lesser-known masterpiece of his called The Feeling of Things, The Contemplation of Beauty, which was addressed to follow 
followers of communion and liberation in 2002. Here's David Clayton, who you met last episode, provost of Pontifex University and a professional sacred artist, to explain the central point of Pope Benedict's that we all need to hear. And Benedict XVI says that that we are called to participate in the creative work of God, or something like that. I can't remember right. the exact phraseology. So it is our privilege to, as Christians to partake of the divine nature and work as part of the mystical body of Christ for the redemption of the world. And when we are in conformity with that, it is for the joy of mankind, it is for our joy, and it is for the glory of God. closer to the source of all creation, God himself. We enter into the creative acts because God enters into creation to be with us. But the question begs itself, of course, what does this look like? What does it mean to be a creator? Well, I think it's time for us to tell the rest of our story through the lens of three artists who have dedicated themselves, really their whole lives, <laughs> to capturing and creating beauty and what their lives can teach us about our own call to create. For SEP, we need to reintroduce someone. I'm Corey Hyman, creative director at Likeable Art. I like to make things and to help people make things, and especially my most important things are furthering people's mission, who I totally agree with and think they're doing awesome work, and also just trying to raise up the next generation of artists. You met Corey last episode, by the way. He's the creative director of Likeable Art. And by the way, if you haven't listened to last episode, now would be a good time to do so. (laughs) It helps to put today's episode in context. Now, you've already heard Corey's story, his love of the arts from an early age, and how he struggled to understand the importance of the arts, even as someone who loved them. But today, I wanted to tell another story about Corey. And that story begins one day in prayer with his Bible. I was reading through the Bible and I got five words in and I had to stop and take a break because that's about how Can good you the reader say is, right? you read through the Bible? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I take it back. I take it back. I opened my Bible one time. Okay, Let, let's word it that way. I, I opened my Bible and I got five words in, right? And so the first five words of the Bible are in the beginning, God created, right? And so like at the, at like, literally I stopped and I put it down and I said, that's all I'm going to read today because I need to reflect on that. And as he reflected, he realized even more than he already knew that the creative act the process of creating art and beauty wasn't meant to be an abstract ideal. It was a call to all of us, a roadmap, if you will, to enter more fully into the love of God and the life of the church. If in the beginning God created, well, then every time we create, we're sharing in the first thing that God shared that he did, right? And so like 
that connection is really significant. I think that that's really important. So now that Corey knew even more about the importance of creating, he decided he had to do something about it. So in 2017, he reached out to artists and creators all over the country to contribute to an anthology of essays about creating and beauty. The book, called The Created Book, is a collection of 62 artists, intellectuals, musicians, graphic designers, and many, many, many more creators, each asked to answer a simple question. What are your five words? Since the book was inspired by the first five words of the Bible in the beginning God created, what five words would you want to share with your fellow Christians, artists, or just humans in general (laughs) that you believe is essential in understanding the importance of beauty in our lives? These contributors each wrote short essays about their words as well. And guys, the book is amazing. (laughs) There's a link to the book on our website, by the way. It is filled with remarkable art and insight into the power of beauty in our lives, beginning with page one. I very purposely went to Bishop Barron for the first page of the created book, right? And so I asked Bishop Barron, like, hey, I, I've heard you talk about this. Can we can we write this up for, for the created book? And so what he talks about is he talks about a baseball game. And he says, if you want a child to love baseball, don't start telling them all the rules, right? Don't say, well, you run through first, but you slide into second. And, you know, you're going through all these weird uh, abstract rules of baseball. He says, don't do that. Take them to the game, buy them a hot dog, let them smell the smells and see the sights, and they'll watch a baseball game. They will sit there and they they will point and say, I want to do what that guy's doing, right? And then you can take them on the baseball field and show them how. And so he relates that to how we always start with beauty when sharing the faith. If we want people to to be attracted to Christ and his goodness, and if we believe that Christ is who he says he is, then then we have to we have to start with beauty and we have to let that attract hearts and say, I want that. And then once they say they they want that, then we lead to the, to the good and the true. Understand, of course, that Corey isn't simply trying to speak to a select niche of people. There's nothing elitist or exclusive about what Corey is doing. The point of the book, in fact, Corey's whole mission is to reiterate the long-standing belief of the church that we are called to create and capture beauty. But somewhere along the way, as Corey says, this fact is lost on us. People have done studies where they go into a kindergarten class and they ask who here is an artist and nine out of 10 people always raise their hand. And if you follow those same kids to, to senior year and you ask who's the, who's the artist, one in 10 will raise their hand, right? So it completely switches that 90-10, right? And so what what is that and what does that lose in our own soul? What does that lose in our soul? That line really stuck with me in a world when so many people who create feel like they have to defend their time creating, right? They have to fight back against the power of convenience and utility. Corey is hoping his work, both the created book and his organization, Likeable Art, will be a source of reminding each of us that the word artist isn't for the select few. It is a call for all of us. But I think it's very possible 
very feasible to raise up the next generation of artists. Like, I think that that is a totally something that can, and, and honestly, at this point, I've just decided it will happen, right? And, and raise up a generation of artists that has a common set of values and one that, that kind of can push back when needed, you know, as an artist should. The book I'm, I see is kind of that, just that start of, here are a common set of values to start from. generation of artists, of souls who see art as integral to their personal and spiritual growth. They are living among us. <laughs> Some are professional artists like Lawrence from the top of the episode and who we'll talk with in a little bit. And some are the humble, good people among us who from an early age saw art as an avenue to learn more about themselves and about God. Which brings me to this man. So my name is Father Gerard Alba. Uh, I am a priest for the Archdiocese of Kansas City, Kansas. Father Gerard Alba has been a priest in the Archdiocese of Kansas City for the past four years. He was born in the Philippines, moved to the United States when he was 10, lived in New Jersey for a bit, but ultimately his family found themselves in Kansas. This is where I felt called to to love and and serve our God and through his people. Father Alba went to Benedictine College, got a master's degree in architecture from the University of Kansas, and studied for the priesthood at Mundelein Seminary in Chicago. But from an early age and throughout his formation, there were two constants for Father Alba. His faith, which he fell in love with at an early age, and his passion for art. You kind of grow up and that's one of the first activities so you you kind of do is to, you know, you draw and make things and everyone else start doing other things. And I just, this is the thing that I, I love doing. So I, yeah, I kept up with it. And there's a moment, you know, in, in our life where we, with certain, certain activities that we start doing them, not just because they're fun and enjoyable, but, or because we have to, and becomes like, no, I want to do this. And I want to be better at it. Sometime during his middle school years, Father Alba started collecting comic books, and he began emulating the drawings he saw from some of his favorite superheroes and such. But not long after that, Father Alba did something I just find super interesting. <laughs> he made a decision about his art, a decision which would affect not only his artistic life, but his spiritual life as well. A turning point probably was when I switched this was, I think, eighth grade. I just decided to just, I'm only going to draw in pen and not draw a pencil anymore, or at least for a while. And that was a, a, a big change because I, I realized I was spending so much time erasing, you know, because uh, I always want to get it right each time. And so, but after a while, like it was my way of like being okay with making mistakes. So you had to just draw and when it's ink, it's permanent, you know? And then, yeah, I would have the sketchbook and then, because I knew, I, looking at like 
artists that I, I liked and great artists, they would have all these sketchbooks, you know, and not, not they're not great or anything necessarily, but there's a process to it. And so uh, yeah, I started just doing that. I wasn't trying to make a great piece each time. It's just, I'm, it's just a process, right, of, of becoming better. Can you imagine an eighth grader having this much insight? <laughs> it's just incredible. Realizing that part of the creative journey is accepting one's mistakes and, more importantly, entering fully into the process of creating. When you, you're creating, especially when, when it's something permanent like, like ink, you have to just be like, well, it's not what I intended to do, but we're just going to keep going, you know? then all of a sudden, like sometimes what you consider originally as a mistake becomes like the thing that that moved it to a different direction that you're like, wow, this is way better than I ever thought. When you are truly open to where the art is going, particularly in sketch and painting, there seems to be this sense from the artists I've spoken with that something or perhaps someone <laughs> is there with you when you operate from a place of openness. Father Alba said to me multiple times that when he started using only pen, it felt like he was truly opening himself up to the Holy Spirit in a new and exciting way. When you do God's will, when you're united in his will, you're also fully you, right? You're also fully alive. That that sense I first experience when I'm making and creating in the drawing. Even before his seminary formation, Father Alba knew that art would be a part of his call as a priest. Father Alba told me about a friend of his from seminary, Father John Muir, who is a musician and a Catholic speaker. And Father John gave him advice, which helped shape how he understood his life, both as an artist and as a priest. One of the things I remember him saying is like, you know, God ca called me, and that means all of me into the priesthood. Whatever I have, whatever I bring, it's who I am. It's meant to be here because He called me uniquely, and I think that's 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 how I see it too. I know as a priest, I'm actually more of me than I ever was, and and so my my art and all that stuff becomes just a part of it too for me. Uh, it's not just one or the other, so. And it helps me. I know it makes me a better priest. One of the things I've loved about this series is understanding how the creative process is so different for everyone. Not just because of the style or the avenue by which they're creating, but also because of their own unique personalities and calls. Father Alba, for example, starts his works and he does not stop <laughs> until they are finished. Unless he's working on private commissions, he almost never stops creating in the middle of his creation. Obviously, many of the artists we've met or will meet do things exactly opposite. <laughs> they start and come back, stop and come back and come back. You get the picture, right? Listen, for example, to a story Father Alba told me about a recent visit with his three and five-year-old nieces. But for them, the experiences are different. For the five-year-old, she's thinking about what the what it looks like at the end. And she's like really meticulous about, you know, every little thing. For the three-year-old, for her, it's just the it's just the process. There's like a story with it, you know? She's like engage in this in this whatever world that she's in and so she's just drawing whatever the process is whatever the story is 
right on top of each other. As we talked about last episode, beauty is a gateway to a life of faith. It forms you in the same way good relationships form you, right? We've all had experiences like this, of course. When you surround yourself with good people, you start to want to become good too. You want to be better, right? And art is the same way. Beauty, good art, will transform you. It will, if you let it, even make you better. But in order to make you better, you have to enter fully into the process. My whole chat with Father Alba reiterated this point over and over again, from his use of only pen, to his devotion to completing the sketch, to his understanding of the impact of good art. All of it is about not simply living for the final product, but you must be present in the act of creating. You have to, in a sense, return to a time in our lives when we created simply to create. You do have to take risks. Uh, I think that's why people don't, it is a risk. And you, you have to be okay with your mistakes, you know? You have to be okay that it's just, it's a process. You're, you're growing in that. I think actually there's a, there's a long time ago, maybe a, a decade now, uh, I was listening to an NPR story and in it, this guy, he um, he teaches music to like adults and, and kids, and he mentioned about how adults learn and how children learn. And he said that the, the kids like they learn like a single note or a chord or whatever, and they're like, "Oh man, that was awesome!" Like, they're so excited that like and they'll like play it over and over and over again. Just like so great. And then an adult, it's like, "Oh, I can only play that," you know, like it's never good enough. Yeah, so the adults would stop. Very rarely does an adult will continue because they want to play like they're professionals from the get-go, you know, and so they're standard right away, and so it's not good enough. And I think that's true for for, for many, that somehow we, we have that false expectation. And I think having, again, that childlike character, being childlike, I think, is so living in the spirit, you know? When you do that, then there's a freedom there. There's a freedom because there's no, you're not afraid. It's, you're just, you're playing, right? My soul has been set free. You've taken hold of me. I'll follow. Which brings me to our final artist for today. An artist we'll be getting to know better next episode, but I wanted to end with Lawrence because of something she told me about icons. 
You see, I was very deliberate in choosing a sacred artist for today's episode. I intentionally sought out an iconographer because of the process of painting icons and how that process perfectly models the essence of why creating is important in the spiritual life. Here's Lawrence again. I try to be in a state of prayer. I try to be quiet and and focus and if there is any distraction because there are distractions that come um, I try to stop and resume later and I'm not always fasting at least from food but uh, there is a whole interior approach inner approach to painting and I certainly try to be anchored in scriptures and in in my own personal uh, prayer time Creating icons is, in a sense, the antithesis of so much of our world today. For starters, of course, the center of the creative act is prayer. (laughs) Creating is intimately and naturally tied to the creator himself. And in some ways, the iconographer takes themselves out of the process as they slowly give the act over to God. But I wanted to talk with Lawrence for another reason, too. Traditional Byzantine icons are the antithesis of the modern world because of the time it takes to complete them. Listen to Lawrence describing to me just what the process of creating an icon entails. Kind of a, a, a slower and like pace, you know, I mean, I, so much of, of what we consume in our world is, mm-hmm. is very, very fast, mm-hmm. you know, several yeah. images a minute. This, this takes a certain it slowness. Has, <laughs> it has to, even on a very practical uh, point of view, because egg tempera, so icons are painted with the egg tempera technique mm-hmm. where you mix the ground pigments, which are there, you see oh, I have many, yes. with the binder, which is the egg yolk. Oh. And it's a very slow process. Right. You have to respect some timing. You cannot rush. So a very simple icon like um, this one, yes. you know, which is not finished, mm-hmm. I would say mm-hmm. it's minimum 20, 20 hours. A minimum of 20. That icon was 20 hours. Just the, the, the icon of Christ. Just the one, that's one, one person. Yes. Holy it's 20 money. hours. Between the, the, the beginning, you know, the very beginning, and you have a preparation of the board, and then you have the, the, the drawing and the gilding step, and then the painting, and it's a very slow process. So, yes, you have to slow down, Amazing. which is difficult nowadays because it teaches you patience right and if you rush <laughs> first thing I if thought. you rush let me tell you that you make a big mess and you have to start over and yeah so it's a slow process iconography is in a way one of the more intense creative acts and yet iconographers also model for all of us the beauty of creating with our creator the prayerful center, the slow, meditative, patient process, the act of being in the moment with God as the center and drawing close to our creator. Iconography can serve as a model for each of us, not simply about the importance of creating, but in how the process of creating can draw us closer to God and make us better. And we are called, of course, to do this in our own way. Do not be afraid to take that first step, regardless of what we or anyone else may think. I've had guy friends, for example, decide to take up watercoloring classes at our local rec center. 
I know other friends who take up piano or guitar later in life. My father-in-law, after an injury 30 years ago, decided to learn stained glass and has created beautiful works of art for our family. My own mom, after crocheting exclusively for 30 years, decided she will do the unthinkable and learn how to knit. (laughs) Why do we do all of this? Why do we put ourselves through the process of learning to create again? Because there is something inherent in all of us that knows we are our best when we create. We are drawn to create because we know, even instinctually, that this is what we were born to do. But this begs the question, of course, what then? As I entered and left Lawrence's studio, I stared at her recently completed icons of Christ and our Blessed Mother. It was overwhelming how beautiful these paintings are. But I also found myself stumbling whenever I looked their way. Their eyes seemed to almost follow me around the room, right? And I realized that as much as I love art, as much as I love the process of creating, I have no idea what to do in front of a sacred image. And yet, aren't I kind of supposed to know, right? How, in other words, do I enter into the mystery of Christ through the gift of art, through the gift of creation? Next time on Mystery Through Manners. Thank you so, so much to the amazing people I spoke with today, especially to Lawrence for allowing me to come into her home and see her absolutely extraordinary work. Please visit our website for a link to her amazing work. And thank you so much also to Corey, to David, and to Father Gerard Alba. I am forever grateful for the insights that you provided for this episode. Thank you to Francis Cabildo for his song, Surrender. Please visit our website for a link to all of his amazing music. We'll be back in two weeks, folks, for part two of this series on creating with our creator. Next week, we're talking about praying with creation. Please, please, would you mind if you enjoyed today? (laughs) Could you please tell a friend? We'd really appreciate the support. Uh, Give us a ranking on iTunes or whatever you listen and support us on Patreon. God bless you, and we'll see you then.